Hello listeners, it's Rebecca McCallum here, Assistant Editor at Girls Magazine and Senior Contributor at Moving Pictures Film Club. And I'm excited to share the news with you that I have launched a new podcast called Talking Hitchcock, which explores the world and the work of the director. Each episode, I invite you to join me and special guests in my screening room to dissect one of Hitchcock's films or to post-show drinks for topic-led discussions on everything connected to the Hitchcockian universe. You can listen to Talking Hitchcock on all podcasting streaming services, including Apple and Spotify. And find us over on Twitter at Hitch underscore pod and Instagram at TalkingHitchPod. You can find and follow me on socials at PendlePumpkin. And I look forward to you joining me soon. Take care and keep talking Hitchcock. Welcome back to The Pod and the Pendulum, the horror movie podcast covering all the franchises, one movie, one episode at a time. I'm your host, Mike Snoonian, and I have a couple very special guests here with me tonight. First, from the Spectre Cinema Club, welcome back, Mr. Devon Taylor. Devon, how are we? Hello, hello. I'm doing good. Reporting live from inside of a red trunk. Uh, sorry if I sound a little goopy coming out of some seasonal change weather stuff, but uh, I'm good. Excellent. Also with us tonight from Ghouls Magazine, welcome back, Ariel Powers Shab. Our Ariel, how are we? I'm doing great. I've got my collector T-shirt on. Oh my goodness! Even this is an audio medium. Your listeners won't be able to tell, but I'm so stoked to talk about this movie. I had to wear the T-shirt. And, you know, who would he, if you weren't, who would even know if you were lying? That's true. Right? Do I even exist? Have you even seen us in the same room? That's true. I could be doing all these voices. Yeah. You'll, you'll right hear now. the enthusiasm of your t-shirt through your this recording. That's right. true. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm excited to talk this one because this is one, Ariel, that you brought to the table. You made this suggestion. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's definitely not, wouldn't be like my first pick. So I kind of like that. I kind of like having to step outside of my own comfort zone a bit. Why don't you tell the listeners what the next pair of movies we're going to be covering is? Yes. So today we are talking about Marcus Dunstan's The Collector from 2009. And then we will be following it up with The Collection from 2012. And when you first suggested Marcus Dunstan, I thought you were saying Dunstan checks in for a movie. <laughs> and I'm like, that would be a different genre than we usually cover. But That'd then you said, no, it's one of his. Patreon episode, maybe. Possibly. <laughs> so, Aria, let's, before we kind of get into the background of the movie, mm-hmm. why don't we take a, a couple minutes and talk about like our initial thoughts on this one? Yeah. Why don't you kick things off since you brought it to the table? Sure. Um, So 
obviously I love this movie. That's why I wanted to bring it on. I don't remember hearing anything about this movie when it came out. So I was a little bit late to the party. I didn't watch it till a few years later. And um, it is definitely in that torture porn vibe, which is something that I tend to enjoy watching. Um, And it's kind of funny because I'm actually very squeamish in real life. So like the stuff that I'll watch on screen is so much more intense than anything I could look at in real life. But something about it being on screen like makes it okay for me. Um, And I find this movie really captivating. I can barely look away. And the first time I watched it, I didn't really know what I was getting into. And I was actually sort of confused when like Arkin sees the collector in the house and starts to realize he's there. I was like, wait, are they working together? Who's this other guy? Have we met him? And I remember being like, I think I need to rewind. I think I missed something, but I just needed to go along with it. And then it was going to make sense. Um, I love the traps. I love the gore. I love the way it sounds, the way it looks. So this is a comfort watch for me. Mm -hmm. What do you think it is about being squeamish in reality? But like having like the comfort of it on screen, how do those two things kind of reconcile themselves? I don't know. I could probably spend a lot of money in therapy breaking that down if I wanted to. Fair Um, enough. I, you know, being able to pause it, being able to think about, oh, this is how they did this effect. That's really cool and creative. I love how they did that. Knowing that nobody's actually hurt. Um, that definitely helps knowing that I could walk away from it if I wanted to. Whereas if you're confronted with something like that in real life, you probably have to respond or like call an ambulance or something. So like I'm a hundred percent off the hook watching something on the screen that isn't real. I have no responsibility to it at all. Yeah. I think what you just, two things you just said there are definitely, play into it for a lot of folks the fact that a you can pause it Mm -hmm. and from some of like the research and reading i've done on like why horror movies can work so well with folks that are trying to manage anxiety Mm -hmm. is exactly that's one of the things is the fact that they can hit the pause button if they need to and then take a breather and it's like oh just like if i wanted to i could take a pause in my anxiety Mm mm-hmm And then the other part of it is, like you said, if it gets to be too much, there's the ability to walk away from something like that. So it's interesting to see. Have you found, like, the more that you've gotten into more extreme horror, that real-life squeamishness goes down? Or is it still at the same level? It's still at the same level, I think. Um, Okay. I so I used to have a job where I had to respond to emergencies sometimes and my brain could like turn that off and I would just focus on what I needed to do and like clean up blood or whatever it was that I needed to do and then later I would freak out sure so I know that like some part of me could turn this off I guess if I needed to or if I wanted to but I would love to like not freak out if I cut myself while I'm chopping vegetables in the kitchen. But my response is to just like freak out at the blood. Sure. So I could probably decide to work on that if I wanted to. I'm probably not going to. I mean, it's probably healthier to freak out after the fact, like you said, with the job, like mm-hmm. to not just push it all aside, 
it's probably better later on to say, okay, this was a very fucked up thing I saw, and now yeah. I'm going to process it, and here's how. But that's a different topic for now. I just find that always kind of, like, fascinating, like, how we can, in horror, how we can watch them incredibly goopy things yeah and be totally fine with it but if there's a spider like yeah uh, there was a mouse that crawled across one of the beams in our basement and oh, i was gosh. like oh shit a mouse and like uh <laughs> and don't even get me started around bees so mm. devon how about for yourself yeah i found this one um this was i it only came to me about a couple of years ago uh kind of like Ariel said i never heard about it when it came out and it just kind of appeared on shelves at Blockbuster and Hollywood videos one day. And I was just like, I'd always uh, pass it, you know, because the, the poster is pretty recognizable. Um, but I didn't watch it until I was at the height of, or not the height, but um, whenever I w became a full-fledged Saw fan. Uh, whenever I was like really binging those and like kind of going into it and really getting into the lore of those movies. So whenever I saw that this movie came from a few of those guys and it was supposed to be, you know, a, a Jigsaw prequel spinoff, maybe um, uh, I just had to dive into it. And I mean, honestly, I would rank this higher than most of the Saw sequels. Um, I really enjoy this film. It's just a, a very tight, efficient, but very grisly film. Uh, it's got plenty of style in it, uh, you know, introducing a a very uh, interesting uh, mass killer as well. But I uh, came away very compelled by this being kind of a uh, heist horror hybrid. I've always been into heist movies or con men or thieves and things like that. And I've always wanted to see that integrated more into horror uh, because I feel like that's such a very compelling and, or not antagonist, but anti-hero to go up against a slasher that they kind of have similar skills and things like that. So getting to see the tension of them kind of do this cat and mouse game uh, integrated with, uh, you know, we got some like Rugelberg saw trap action going on as well. I thought um just makes for a really fun mix. It's uh, not trying to do a whole bunch, but the things that it is trying to do, it does uh, very efficiently. And um, yeah. I, I really enjoyed these films. Yeah. Yeah, this was a first time watch for me for these episodes like this and the collector were both like uh sorry, the collection were both things i hadn't seen before and i did remember like advertisements for this movie i do remember seeing trailers for it whether it was on television or at theaters and just thinking like nah this really isn't for me like i don't really feel a need to run out and see this like the torture porn subgenre and i don't say that in a derisive way i just like that's what these get labeled as um it's not necessarily my bag like i'm not one like oh there's no value in these it's just like meh typically not for me um so i would kind of that's why i'm interested in in covering these two movies and also i think it'll make a nice dry run for the saw movies like later on down the road this year i enjoyed it more than i thought like i popped it in on a sick day i decided to take like a monday out of work and just basically take a mental health day and like watch movies in bed um so it was kind of an interesting watch for that reason and i liked the heist horror aspect of it i enjoyed the fact that you were getting something at least trying for a little bit more story-wise than 
you know, what you're typically getting out of, say, like a hostile movie, which is let's just get a group of co-eds in a murder hotel and have uh, some goopy stuff happen, which I know is pretty reductive. And I know the second one in particular, there is more going on there, which and that'll be a, a series we do cover one day as well. Oh, I don't I know. Remember. The third one is rough. We did Creep Show three, okay, and we did Poltergeist three and the remake, and we did both Lost Boy sequels. So we can handle rough. Enjoy Ride <laughs> two. Yeah, oh, we can Ride handle. Two is real special. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even know there so, was a third Hostel movie, and that sucks good. that there's a third Hostel movie, but yet yeah, the the collected the the third movie for this series is just you know been in limbo for the past just, decade. Yeah, Ugh. yeah, and to be fair, in in full disclosure, I remember when I saw Hostel in theaters, I really liked it, and did agree with the general consensus that Hostel 2 has more going on. So I'm lying if I say that I don't like those movies. Um, this to me, it has a very post 9-11, we're in the grips of like the Iraq war, the Great Recession is going on, there's a massive amount of uncertainty. I think it's interesting that the victims in this movie are the 1% of the 1% and you don't get to know them at all, right? I mean, this is the height of the Occupy movement in the late 2000s. We're not meant to care about anybody in this family aside from like the youngest girl. Mm -hmm. um, the ending of this movie is really mean, like really, really mean. Yeah. And it is a year after Iron Man. There is a... Uh, post credit stinger as well at the end of this movie. Yes. Which I thought was really interesting. Um, I rewatched it again just a few nights ago ahead of recordings. I just think that's the best way to I have to, I can't just watch something once and then talk about it. And I liked it even more on the second watch and partially because I took Ari's recommendation on like how to watch it and we'll talk about that when we talk about like uh, some of the aspects of this movie. I'm like this is like a really well-made movie. Like yes. even though it's not my favorite subgenre, like the special effects are incredible. The practical effects are incredible. It gives me a pretty compelling lead actor and a good performance. Mm -hmm. And uh, from a technical standpoint, they get a lot right. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely oh, no. given a little bit more effort than some of the torture porn as that kind of came before it. Cause this is kind of coming a little bit on the tail end a little bit. So I think uh, you can kind of come in with a pretty low bar for it. But then once you kind of see it, like you said, like the the filmmaking quality is there and the, the effort is definitely there that, you know, that there's actually some thought being put into this rather than it kind of just being, uh, you know, gratuitous gore for the hell of it. Yeah. Out of curiosity, I just made a note here. All three of us have mentioned appreciating the heist aspect of it. Are there any, like, doesn't even have to be horror movies. Are there any heist movies that all of us enjoy? Anything that we enjoy in that genre of movies? The I Fast mean, and the Furious. Of course. Okay. Definitely a part of the family. Yeah. Uh, for sure. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm like, uh, not as much for, I guess, the, the classic heist movies. I actually did a, a podcast episode on uh, Force 5, and we did our uh, top five heist movies. I managed to slip this one in there. 
Um, but uh, I like the the heist movies that kind of have some sort of gimmick or twist to them. So like, I like the Now You See Me movies because it's magicians pulling off heists. That's fun. Mm-hmm. You know, just the idea of it is is fun regardless of if those movies make sense at all. Uh, so I'm a, I'm a fan of those. Uh, Baby Driver is another fun mm, one. Yeah. You know, kind of this like a, a action heist musical. Um, so I, I like that as well. So so those are a few of mine. I um, City on Fire, which is a South Korean film that Tarantino drew like a heavy inspiration from on uh, Reservoir Dogs, like the last act of City on Fire definitely is Reservoir Dogs kind of blown out to a 90-minute movie. It's fantastic. Uh, Really enjoy that one. And I just last night watched The Killing for the first time, which is uh, an early Kubrick film, which incredibly well done, incredibly tense. And you can also, like my wife and I, like she popped in for like to watch something for five minutes with me and it ended up staying for the whole 90 minute movie. And she was like, you can see the fingerprints of this movie on like Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Mm -hmm. Dogs for Mm -hmm. sure. And it spoiler for like a 60 year old (laughs) movie, like the heist is successful, except everybody dies, but one person and all of the money is in an oversized suitcase and you know and he's going to the airport and you know something is going to go wrong. And basically all the money gets blown out of the suitcase, propelled by all the jet engines and is blowing everywhere. And he just tries to leave he's like, ah, fuck it. It just tries to leave. And when the cops figure out it's him and his like lady dame is like, you have to run. He's like, ah, what's the point? And just walks to the cops. It's like the best ending and the delivery <laughs> Sorry to spoil a 60-year-old movie, but I'm like, oh, man, do I actually love Kubrick films? And so I would say um, those are two I would recommend. But okay, we're not here to talk about heist movies tonight. We're here to talk about The Collector. And let's start with a little bit of background about this movie. So I guess we should start with the fact that this was supposed to be a Saw prequel. Right. Like, what's going on with that, Ari? Yeah, it was pitched... um... By Marcus Dunstan and the other writer whose name I am not pulling off the top of my head. Patrick Melton, I believe. Yes. Um, So it was pitched as a Saw prequel. And there's a really good article about this kind of whole thing on Bloody Disgusting from around the time uh, this movie came out. And I definitely recommend people read that if they're interested. Because there was a lot of, like, this movie really went on a journey in terms of, like, who was involved, what it was going to be, who was going to distribute it, what it was going to look like. And it just kind of seems like, not that it changed hands a lot, but that it went through a lot of people before it came to be what it was. And, um, you know, the business side of filmmaking, I don't think I'm super knowledgeable about, but it sounded like a lot to me. Like, it sounded like a lot to go through. So I don't know how much their original idea changed to what we see on screen because it doesn't quite work as a Saw prequel. But if you think about the way Jigsaw, he has to go get people for his traps. So if you think about, and they do eventually get into that in the sequels, but you know, Jigsaw going out into the world or sending his disciples out to collect people and bring them back to his 
warehouse place like you could make a spin-off movie about that and that could be pretty interesting so i could see the collector working for that but ultimately it became its own thing and i think that's really good because it allows more mystery around who the collector is and why he does what he does and it allows it to just sort of like you don't have to have the jigsaw tie-in you don't have to have especially the way the saw like timeline goes you don't have to try to work into that just letting it be its own thing i think was really smart so um they also had trouble getting the rating down to an r rating it was hard to work it down from an nc-17 to an r um so i'm like oh i want to see all the stuff that i didn't get to see in the nc-17 version so how much yeah, this more been through a lot could have there been like because this shows you a lot yeah like it does Quite not um hold back i just wonder like is it just a matter of how long things linger on screen like sometimes mm -hmm. it's not even this is too gross it's just this is too gross for too long yeah so i don't know if if, if that was it because this comes in at a tight 90 minutes which yep. anyone who knows me like either give me 90 minutes or three hours don't give me anything in between so and really i'm we, all for that and really we just get a lot of aftermath like that's like where a lot of like the like most like grisly imagery is like on like the impact a lot of these shots it does like kind of happen pretty fast so it might be um like you said like kind of just like the length of lingering mm -hmm. on some of those shots yeah mm -hmm. you mentioned so the co-writers, Patrick Melton and Marcus Dunstan, they're interesting in that they are like a true creative duo. Mm -hmm. Like if you look at their credits, pretty much they always work on, they always write together. And then Dunstan has directed a few things. They seems like they got their start with the Feast movies. Um, mm -hmm. Do either of you remember that show Project Greenlight? No. It was an early 2000s show on like the ifc channel that is basically a contest run by matt damon and ben affleck like after goodwill hunting where they're like hey we're going to like did a reality show for filmmakers and at the end of each season the winning director would basically get like a couple hundred thousand dollars to make a movie and then oh, wow. that movie would be like marketed distributed it's pretty cool and it's like a not an awful show the problem was like the first couple seasons, the things that won were these like kind of indie dramas that weren't necessarily nobody was going to see them in theaters. So the third season, the winner is Feast. Uh, it is Clue Gallagher's son. I think it's John Clue Gallagher. Oh, God, I'm going to mispronounce it. Why can I not pronounce his name? Hold on for one second. And I know listeners absolutely adore when I do my research on the spot. <laughs> so, hey, future Mike, I know you wanted a tight show. You didn't have to edit that much tonight. But this is just a peek behind the scenes. You know, yeah, this is VIP. Gulliger. Okay. So, the winner of season three is John Gulliger, who's the son of Clue Gulliger, who um, horror fans know from A Nightmare on Elm Street 2. He's also done some fantastic guest appearances on Murder, She Wrote, and he's just awesome, like Clue Gallagher rules. Um, so Feast wins season three, and this movie was written by Melton and Dunstan. And they would go on from there to kind of become like a pretty hot writing duo. I mean, they write Saw 4, Saw mm -hmm. 5, Saw 6, Saw 3D. So that whole middle section where 
those Saw movies were just raking in like tons of money. Mm-hmm. They're the writing team behind it. Uh, they co-write Piranha 3D together. Um, and this is Dunstan's directing debut, and he mm-hmm. does the collection after. He seems to basically, this is his wheelhouse right now. Like, he likes movies where people get put in traps and um, get hunted down by some weirdo. Because in 2016, he does another movie called, like, The Neighbor, which is essentially the same thing. It's like a sort of heist movie where they get these people. It almost sounds like, in some ways, Don't Breathe, like mm-hmm. another version it of It came out movie. the same year, too. Yeah. So I would say if there is a wheelhouse... Uh, movies with traps that would be Dunstan and Melton's wheelhouse I like that they kind of have that like as far as like their subgenre but then I like that they also are kind of um, uh, really into interconnectivity because with Feast they got three movies that they write all three of them and then uh, in the the saw entries that they write because the first three saw entries kind of like kind of stand on their own in their like own little ways like it has connectivity but they're on their own and then mm-hmm. four through seven is like kind of where we really get a lot more of yeah. the the soap opera-esque uh twists and turns and connections uh throughout the saw franchise that it kind of becomes known for is that what they start to run kind of concurrent with one another like part yeah, yeah. four and five take place at the same time now it would be but- a spoiler for us to reveal to listeners before we do our season on this which movies take place when okay <laughs> because sometimes it is you don't part know of the while fun. you're watching yeah okay <laughs> okay fine it's a bit of sizzle i will i keep like maybe i should start watching these movies early ahead of recording starting in august but i just I just can't bring myself to yet, Ari. I just can't yet. It's not, okay. We're going to get you there. Just, by let, the, the end just of it, let the saw in, Mike. Just let He's it going in. to. <laughs> by the end so, of that, we're going to have Mike fully on board. I am very much looking forward to talking about and record. I think that those shows are going to be a hoot, so I'm mm-hmm. looking forward to it. Um, but where does like this subgenre come from? Like The idea of torture porn. It's a relatively new subgenre like where do these ideas come from or how did this subgenre kind of spring up yeah um so you know it, everything is reacting to something else that came before it and we were just coming off the post scream slasher time in the late 90s and everything was beautiful all the actors were beautiful it was really glossy everything was witty dialogue we all know what that was And so then torture porn comes along and it couldn't be more different. And there's been a lot academically written about the connections between 9-11 and torture porn. And there's lots of people out there who've written a ton about that who can speak on it better than I can. Um, But basically this sense of your world is no longer safe. The systems in place to protect you aren't necessarily working we have to protect ourselves. We shouldn't trust other people. People different from us are dangerous. Like a lot of those ideas that were swirling around, whether you agreed with them or not, or you were trying to fight against them, that was kind of what was culturally going on. And in America in particular, you know, the 90s were like a really solid time in America, obviously not for everybody, but like 
the dominant cultural forces in America in the 90s were like, yay, we did it. We solved all the bigotry, guys. We solved racism. Women have rights now. It's just party time forever. And like in the 2000s, you see in some of the movies, um, they are sometimes acting like that's still true and sometimes acknowledging like no these things aren't fixed so like america had to really kind of wake up about things not being the way that they thought they were anymore especially post 9-11 and the torture porn subgenre is a subgenre that's always in dialogue with itself and reacting to itself and building on itself if the last movie was nasty this one has to be nastier so that audiences will keep coming back we were seeing actual torture coming out of Abu Ghraib and audiences were pretty desensitized to actual violence. And so filmmakers were like, well, we got to give them something to keep them interested and they're not grossed out by anything anymore. And it was also a time where horror fans were treated like a monolith. And it was like horror fans are edgelord dude bros who want to see tits and then women get killed, which, you know, some of us are. But some of us aren't. So a lot of the movies that came out that do get lumped in as torture porn are sort of playing for that audience that may or may not have really existed. So that is like a super duper short sum up of some of the factors that I think brought us torture porn. Um, mm -hmm. But I think that's a good place to start. I think I noticed like a lot more of the, the trends of torture porn way more after it because I feel like during it it was kind of just more of uh, getting the, the kind of shock of it all. Uh, it, it was kind of um, our response in a way, I guess, if you want to talk in like the horror landscape uh, to the new French extremity, which I know, Mike, you're also not a, too big of a fan of uh, those films. And that's one of the notes I made too, but continue. Yep. And um, so it was like, it, so maybe on the horror landscape, it was maybe a little bit of a response to that, but like kind of without the, the forethought to it. And so, like, when we kind of talk about it now, it's like uh, we talk a lot about the, the the what of it, of, like, what is torture porn and, like, uh, and, and the, 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 um, the desensitization aspect of it kind of feels like a response to those feelings that we were having post 9-11, like Ari was saying of this, uh, these, you know, there's a lot of feelings of, like, fear and anger, but not knowing where to put that. So like kind of looking back, we're like watching these things and, you know, we want it to be nastier and we want it to be worse and more relentless because it's almost comforting in a macabre way to be like, to be able to kind of, you're, you're feeling all these fears and stuff, but then you watch this and you're like, oh, well, I mean, there's no way I'm going to have to deal with that. So like, at least I can feel a little bit better in that way. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen uh, the movie 20th Century Women, uh, which is not a movie you'd think um, would be brought into this movie's conversation. So Mike, Mills, I missed that. It froze up for a second. Could you repeat that? Um, oh yeah, sure. Um, I don't know if either of you guys have seen 20th century women. Um, it's a like little indie movie that came out a few years ago. It's a Mike Mills movie starring Annette Benning and like Elle Fanning, not a movie you'd think would uh, come into this conversation, but in the movie, it takes place in the seventies and the kid is uh, getting introduced to punk music. And the way that um, it's like kind of explained to him and then him trying to explain it to his mom was like, yeah, these uh, bands have all these emotions and feelings that like uh, outweigh their like skill and like, uh, you know, playing. So it's like, yeah, they 
the the music's not the best and like they don't sing the best and the lyrics don't always make sense but it's like the the best way that they could like kind of get that out i feel like that's kind of torture porn for like horror is like Hmm. like there isn't always gonna be like a kind of this like heady theme that we're looking for we're not uh digging into very interesting characters like they are just like kind of pieces uh to be there but it's just like kind of with uh all these like uh violent imagery and things like that it's just like kind of just like expelling them onto the screen and like is like kind of getting um some of those like feelings of fear and anger like out onto the screen yeah and you said i i have not seen 20th century women but that actually sounds like it would be right up my alley is that mike mills like former rem member like directing this movie uh i don't know if his connection to rem but um it's uh, the same director that did like beginners oh probably not that just that would make sense if it was um yeah, I made the note like here in my thing of like how the French New Extremity movement might have influenced like torture porn because I just remember this like time period in the early 2000s in particular of like horror fans like myself included like seeking out movies like High Tension in particular. Like, that was the one that really kicked the door open. I remember like watching Shaitan with friends on like a horror movie night at our place. And it's funny because Javon, you're like, yeah, I know Mike, you're not a huge fan. I remember at that time, like loving those movies, like seeking out things like frontiers and inside and Shaitan and um, high tension and martyrs and going back and rewatching them for the show, like a couple years ago being like, I don't, have that same affection or affinity for them I had 15, 16 years ago. And I don't, I'd like to interrogate why that is at some point, just because it's, I don't feel that different from the person I was back then. Um, But for whatever reason, they hit in like a much different way this time or watching them for the show. I, and you said something Ari there that I really like the fact that, these were coming off like not just the scream movies and I know what you did last summer and the faculty, like kind of like made for teen horror movies um, that maybe didn't have like the harder edges that horror fans or that horror movies were really known for, but also like the mega success of movies like Blair Witch Project where there's little to no gore and everything is suggested or supernatural thrillers like The Sixth Sense, like both of those movies being cultural touchstones. Coming off of that and then saying, well, instead of having these movies that are going to show you nothing, we're going to have movies that show you everything and where that might come, where that came from as a reaction to like, almost like you said, a certain segment of horror fans, like the black t-shirt bearded overweight dudes you know people who look like me right now i guess which is ironic um saying like we're gonna take back the genre Mm -hmm. i mean i i find the nomenclature interesting because it's called torture porn and like the porn angle of it like uh almost insinuates like the indulgence and like that um, you know, that we're watching torture porn because, like, we enjoy it. And it's like, no, nobody watches 
you know, these things because like, ooh, like I just really love seeing fish hooks getting put through people's skin. Like, I mean, yes, and it's a it's a fun in the horror angle, but it's not like we're relishing in it in that way. I feel like it's, you know, a subgenre that's like, no, we're putting, you know, like, because like New French Extremity was like kind of pushing, uh, you know, like human pain, like to the edge of like, but where it is still grounded to a degree versus torture porn is like trying to show this like almost um, uh, exaggerated version of reality be like, no, like we're going to take it even past like what you think, like the edge of like, you know, true uh, pain and suffering is. So it's like kind of just like, uh, assaulting you in that way and I feel like it's um, more out of uh, curiosity than uh, than indulgence I think yeah well the phrase torture porn wasn't given to it by like horror fans like, it wasn't like fans of the genre that came up with it it's almost like they reclaimed that phrase mm, yeah, yeah. for their own it comes from like an article in uh, New York magazine and it's written by David Edelstein, and it's from, like, January 06, and it's, like, now playing at your local multiplex torture porn. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we've talked about that article in a different episode. I think I know that I've, like, talked about this article before, but it talks about this kind of, and a lot of what you spoke to, Ari, this need to say, like, okay, I'm... I'm not getting enough out of the old horror anymore. It's not enough to suggest death. I need to see it up close. I need to see the intricate workings of it in order to comprehend it or be satisfied. Uh, And it talks about like our almost fetishistic need to do that. And it does so in a pretty derisive way. It's not meant, not meant as a compliment. And I think fans of the genre took it almost like took the phrase back at that point usually when you i would say and maybe i'm wrong but it feels like more often than not when you hear that phrase it's done in a negative context oh yes most definitely um i have like i i could like like take a shot or like if i had a dollar for every time i've heard someone say the exact phrase oh yeah i'm into horror but not really like that torture porn stuff Like Mm. people put that qualifier on it. Like when you meet a new horror fan and you're talking about like, oh, cool, I'm a horror fan, too. Like, what do you like? People will say that to me and I'm like, oh, you know, I I do like that. So like, (laughs) you know, what uh, what do you mean? You know, Mm -hmm. Um, and then they back up really fast. Um, And Eli Roth hates that phrase. Last I checked, he thinks that people who call his movies torture porn don't get them. Um, and I'm kind of like, well, you can settle down about that, Eli so- Roth. It's not that deep. <laughs> settle down, Eli. Yeah. Um, it, it became like a weird blanket statement, you know, yeah. because yes. I, I, like you said, like, I feel like uh, when people just talk about horror of the 2000s in general, like you mm-hmm. said, it's either they say like, yeah, I don't really like the torture porn stuff or it was like jump scares. Like they like mm-hmm. uh, th- I feel like that's like the two like negative things that people like really associate with the aughts and like why uh, people kind of stop going to the theater for horror, uh, even though it's like those just happen to be like the, the movies that were, you know, in the mainstream. Mm-hmm. But it's like, you know, we obviously have always had indie films still doing things so like that's why it's interesting of you know the 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 term quote unquote elevated horror now it's like no that's just the that's just mainstream 
of you know the the horror movies that kind of weren't uh in theaters at the time like but still being made in the early 2000s well that's a nice segue into the next bit here the idea that people aren't going to the theaters because they're just kind of fed up with like okay it's the same rehashed thing month after month because this is an incredibly profitable time it's a huge time for horror like it's very much kind of mirrors what we've been experiencing since 2018 or so here where like studios realize oh horror is a genre that people will turn out for all the time and they're rushing things to theaters because the saw movies for a, a period of time from like 05 to 09 kind of have a stranglehold on october at the box office and there are a number of like really successful movies that fall under this category but where was it at by the collector coming out because it does feel like the wave had crested by then and horror is going to take like another sharp turn at the end of the decade but where was torture porn as a subgenre at when it came to fans enthusiasm and what they were getting offered by this time yeah um i'm trying to remember because i wrote down a bunch of movies that also came out around this time too but it i have them right here (laughs) from your notes okay oh where are they yes there we are um so in 2008 we had the strangers we had repo the genetic opera saw five in 2009 we had the loved ones out of australia final destination Four, sorority row last house on the left halloween two a lot of those i mentioned are slashers um but they were like nastier slashers yeah so i think what you were seeing around this time was um franchises were still making movies but they were kind of losing steam like final destination four isn't great you know saws starting to kind of wind down we're about to have to contend with paranormal activity contend with yeah Ooh. At the, well at the box office like okay that, that but is... that sounds like your attitude on that like mine towards saw almost like the oh these i love movies. paranormal activity okay. uh but there's no question that it was part of you know stopping saw from having a stranglehold on october ah, you know yeah. for whatever Um, good or bad or neutral so i do think it was starting to wind down in 2009 we're still a few years away from the babadook and the conjuring that give us like another hard turn um but i think like especially after the big uh surge of remakes that were really pretty nasty a lot of them people were kind of kind of done with it and you also have to remember we haven't mentioned too like this is around the time maybe a few years later that people are starting to have internet in their homes very accessible fast internet um you know teenagers are comfortable using it they've used it for a few years you had access to a lot more stuff to watch at this time Mm. too so you know when home video started that was something for theaters to contend with and then the internet becomes super accessible. That's something for theaters to contend with too. Oh, sorry. So, okay. Yeah, and it it's fair. Like this movie is not super successful. Like it is. It makes cost three million. It makes about ten million. So, and like you had said, it had changed hands a lot. Like Dimension mm-hmm. was going to put it out. They decided they didn't want to pay to market the movie. 
and they're like, well, we'll put it direct to video at that point. We'll just sell a bunch of DVDs on it. And but they gave uh, Melton and Dunson the opportunity to shop the movie around, which was then picked up and put out in theaters. But it didn't. It it's kind of the sort of thing that maybe if it came out in 07, mm-hmm. we probably would have like three or four more of these movies like it would have just hit that crest but because it comes out in 09 Mm -hmm. the fervor had died down a little bit i think so yeah let's talk about the movie itself now okay that's kind of a nice little overview and i know we're gonna kind of like dive more into this subject in the coming months ahead so it's a nice little a nice little starting Mm -hmm. point and eventually there's gonna be an are we allowed to say that you're writing a book yeah we can say that eventually you know what's kind of nice is like when we say like well the person who wrote the book on it ari is (laughs) one of the persons who is writing the book on this subgenre so it's always like whenever she suggests one to do i'm like let's let's do it keep an eye out 2024 excellent so i guess we'll start with arkin Mm -hmm. because he is the lens which we are going to see this whole movie through and he is a very different hero um than we're used to seeing in horror movies uh, played by josh stewart mm-hmm. and i put in my notes kind of like if ed norton was hired to play jesse pinkham in breaking <laughs> bad like that's kind of what josh stewart looks like in this movie to me is that Arkham. is 100 percent correct <laughs> so and i kind of love him for that mm-hmm. what do we think of him as a as your hero here I find him very compelling. Uh, you know, he is just a. Uh, you get just a, a a lot of background about him, like in the in the first twenty minutes, just off of like these like little offhand lines and like the interactions he has, and it's like so it's like he's, uh, you know, uh, you know he has a criminal background. He's like also like kind of has a reputation as uh, being this thief, but like he um, he went to went went and spent some time in prison and then had like some protection from this gangster so like they have like this like whole arrangement like you get all this out of just like um these uh little interactions at the beginning and you know he's just a he's a guy he has a daughter he's uh just trying to make things uh make do and it's like you know even in the um whenever you see the first exchange with him and his uh girlfriend and he uh you know gives her the money that he like earned you know outright properly and he's like you know like here like here's that and it's like obviously like not not close but he knows he can like kind of uh get get the get the money he needs so uh i i think he's uh you know kind of easy to root for in that way you know mm-hmm. uh, uh you know under working class guy and uh and again his uh, skill set though is very interesting in the way that he like kind of matches up with the collector uh, because, you know, a, a, a slasher and someone that, you know, uh, sneaks around doing things, you got to have like kind of the s- similar things. You kind of got to think the same way. So, mm-hmm. um, so, uh, having him, uh, as a, as a rival to the collector is interesting. And, uh, and even with like the implied, like criminal background he's had, it's like, you know, he's probably seen some shit. He's probably already been in some super dangerous situations. So to like rattle him in this is like, you know, like, uh, really like kind of, uh, makes the collector a very like, you know, formidable like antagonist mm-hmm. yeah do you think that we needed because his backstory it's it's definitely piled on like he like his wife is 
basically trying to hide out from a loan shark because I don't know why. Like she either bet on the wrong horse or whatever, but she owes some very bad people some money. It's kind of interesting that it's not him that owes this money. Like it's Mm -hmm. definitely put on his wife or his ex-wife, but someone he's been in a a relationship with. And he has his uh, daughter that he is doing this for as well. So he's presented as a thief, but a thief with like a heart of gold. And I almost would be interested if he was more of like a morally gray or maybe even a morally like darker character. Um, Because it's kind of like, well, he's a criminal, but like, look who he's stealing from and he's doing it for his daughter type of thing. And I, I don't know, like to me, it's just going to sound weird, but it's almost like. It, it, he goes back for the little girl in this movie because he goes back for her because he has a daughter of his own. And to me, it shouldn't like take like, oh, well, I have a little girl. Therefore, I will go back to save a child. Like we should all kind of think that like, OK, torturing and murdering, murdering eight year olds is bad. Like you shouldn't need like, well, I used to be pro torturing and murdering eight year olds. <laughs> but then I had a child of my own mm. and. I changed my stance on that. Like, I don't know. It seems like we shouldn't necessarily need to have all of that there. Do you know what I mean? Like, is that? I mean, I, I think it's he's it's it's interesting because it's like it's a very tropey character, especially like in like the heist uh, background. Like, oh, yeah, he's out and he doesn't want to do it. He wants to get money on his own way, but he's got to go back in. And, you know, but and and you even point out the difference that's like his uh, the, the baby mama owes the money, not him. So um, it kind of, yeah, you, it paints him a little bit more like, okay, like he didn't make a bad decision yeah. that put himself in this situation, you know, so he's uh, kind of doing that way. But, um, but again, like, it, but taking that like kind of tropey character from the high subgenre and putting in this just kind of adds, uh, raises the stake a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, uh, and yeah, but because he does he he escapes out of the house and then like because he he leaves that other guy he was just gonna say ah fuck that other guy like because at that point uh the the you know husband and wife were both dead and then it was just like mm-hmm. that other random guy from the cold open uh right. which yeah which uh i feel like that's kind of there's your morally gray area there because at that point he goes ah fuck it i gotta save myself uh mm-hmm. i'm out but then yeah and they sees the the little girl and then decides to go back in right. so i mean we get we get a little bit of grayness but yeah i kind of i gotta take on a little bit of darkness but i don't know he, he still has like a general sketchiness like i like it was like kind of weird like how at the beginning they like kind of try to make him look sketchy like oh is he into little kids and then it's like no he actually has a daughter it's like wait what is like what was that it it was kind of weird i never got that vibe i definitely never got the like arkin is he a pedo i never quite the the whole tea party thing they were like they they kind of framed it in a weird way until he was like oh yeah no i have a daughter it was the dad did like the dad came in it's like what's going on here um I never got the vibe that, like, Arkin was going to – I mean, he wasn't a Catholic priest, so, I mean, it wasn't like (laughs) – No, I mean – If he was a priest slash thief, I would have been like, I don't like where this is going. It's it's those lazy eyes, you know, that's Mm. that's what does it. (laughs) I think the smoking is definitely coded like he's a bad person because he's lighting up butts left and right. So that's supposed to imply awfulness. It is. I – no? We weren't so anti-smoking in 2009. You don't think so? Well, maybe it's just me. Okay. <laughs> um, 
to answer your question, Mike, about do we need to like Arkin? I think we do because this movie is so efficient. I don't think we have time for like a morally gray character mm-hmm. because there's not a lot of dialogue. There's not a lot of character development. We need to quickly establish who's what, where, and then we do violence. So I don't think a morally gray character as the hero in this movie would work as well, even though I do like that in more nuanced stories. Okay. He has one character trait that I really love when he's trying to escape and he can hear others being tortured or yelling out and he knows he can't go back for them. He knows that like it's basically a death sentence too. He'll turn around and he'll just like scrunch up his face and start yelling at that person. Like, why didn't you listen to me? <laughs> he does it a few times. He gets so frustrated. He does. He's like, I'm it, trying to help you. It, it's he reminded me of like Tim Robinson in I Think You Should Leave. Like somehow like <laughs> he'll get that like unnecessarily mad over stupid things. Um it definitely came off like I, I I think you could leave you should leave sketch at times. It was and I liked it. I mean that in a good way. Like mm-hmm. it was a really kind of like very human because I could totally see myself being like, oh, you know, yeah. why don't oh, you yeah. listen to me? Oh yeah. I mean there's like yeah, his his frustration is like very funny because like he, he keeps a pretty level head because like again, he's been in like some like situations. So it's like he's able to try to like keep a level head. And it's like the the reason the only reason the the little girl's the only one to survive is because she's the only one that can take directions. Like mm-hmm. you know, multiple times he's trying to you know just like like look, I know you're in pain. I know this is scary. I know this is crazy. I just need you to shut the hell up. And nobody, right. you know. So it's like I, I felt his uh, his uh, frustration was like kind of a, a an interesting thing. Like even like little points where he's like dealing with like uh, sticky acid on the floor, but then the cat mm-hmm. gets stuck and is like. Like making noises he's like oh you fucking oh, stupid God. cat like uh he just uh you know it, it's very funny like uh, kind of seeing the the inconvenience almost mm-hmm. uh, yeah. that she's dealing with the squelching sound like that ripping sound when he pulls the cat off the like the hot kind of like fly paper and just like the blood coming out but that sound the cat makes along with like you could just hear the skin getting torn off the poor thing is worse than anything else in this movie like it's so and then like the cat i mean people get very sensitive when dogs are killed in movies they take out a cat and a dog these assholes (laughs) i know they're like they're like "Eh, it's just a cat and a whole Um, tank of fish that's true oh equal Um, opportunity for all animals in this one jeez louise So on the flip side of Arkin, I think we all like he's a pretty compelling character to follow, which is good. I think you definitely need that Mm -hmm. for these movies. The flip side of that is we have this family and I don't even have like, I think that just a dad, Brad. I mean, Michael Chase, that's the Chase family. The Chase family. Mm-hmm. Okay. They should be called the Cot family. Really? (laughs) Okay. If you wanted a little bit of dad joke. Um, (laughs) Yeah, like. To me, like, there's really nothing. And again, 09, the Great Recession, the Occupy movement, this is obviously like a super one percenter's house. Like, the dad comes off as incredibly douchey. Like, Devon, like you were saying, when he walks in, it's just a guy sitting there having pretend tea with a little girl 
you know, nothing untoward with one as with one another is a gentleman who has had many a tea party with children. <laughs> you know, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, and he's like, what's going on here? And he has this look on his face like he just walked in on a porn shoot. Um, and he's so condescending, you know, like, oh, there's extra money in here for you. Like, all right, I would have figured that out if you didn't tell me, dude, I can count. I think the way he walks in on the tea party um, partly is like protective of his daughter, but also like I'm paying you to work. Like I got mm-hmm. a very much like a if you have time to lean, you have time to clean vibe from yeah. him, like a manager at a <laughs> Wendy's. Um, no offense to Wendy's. I'm just saying. So like. He, I'm Arkin not is... afraid to offend Wendy's. <laughs> they'll they'll fight you on Twitter. Um Arkin is a contractor and the Chase family is having a ton of renovations done on their house all at once. And as someone who spent, I spent my morning pouring concrete, like is horrible. Doing home renovations is horrible, but um, they're doing a ton at once. They're paying everybody else to do them. They're not doing any on their own. Like I was pouring concrete this morning because we're doing stuff on our own to save money. And it just is what it is. But like the Chase family has enough money to do that and to go on this huge vacation. And so when he has the audacity to walk up to Arkin and say, here's a little bit more money for your little one. I know how hard it can be. I'm kind of like, do you like, I don't know his background. Maybe he comes from poverty. I don't know. But like to be handing money to someone and say, I know how hard it can be. I was kind of like, dude, you are just be quiet right now. Yeah, it he strikes me as the kind of person who might forget his kids names. Yeah, like he spends that little time with them. Or if that's too much, like he might forget like when their birthday is or how old they are. Mm hmm. Right not be not the most like when he's talking about jill later as like oh you know right around 13 they become horrible but i hear they come back around again later eventually it's like really dude like this is this is you as a dad i don't know i felt i felt pretty neutral on him i guess i didn't get all, all that uh offended by the guy like i mean i because i felt like that that initial moment of like breaking in was like a kind of like yeah, like uh, him kind of trying to flex a little bit, but then like, uh, but then I thought like the daughter thing was like the the genuine like kind of uh, them trying to like have like that one like connection moment because if if they didn't have that moment, then Arkin like even still has uh, less motivation to like save them later. So like I feel like this is supposed to be like the for for the for Arkin to like you know for him to make that decision to like still be like okay yeah I'm gonna help you I'm gonna help your daughter like. Because mm-hmm. he has multiple opportunities, he still could have went out, and so like this is uh, again like that kind of tropey. Uh, he remembers this scene whenever he's thinking about escaping. Like he you know, thinks, "Oh yeah, yeah, that time whenever he gave we talked about our daughters, that one guy, you know." So uh, I didn't feel it as as condescending, I guess, in uh, in in that matter. Like I mean, hey, if okay. you're throwing me some extra money, I'll take some extra money. Like sure. Yeah. And everyone else of the family, like. The mom, I'm looking it up, Victoria, like she's just the only introduction you have to her is like she's like doing Botox, right? I mean, she's like shooting her forehead Mm -hmm. up. The little girl, like Hannah, is just a cute little Muppet, like blonde hair, cute little girl, supposed to root for her. Uh, And then there's like Jill, who is trying really, really, really hard to be a bad girl. 
Um, but you know that like when that phase ends, she'll marry like a tech bro or a stockbroker, you know, mm-hmm. like, yeah, yeah like, oh yeah, I'm going to do all the things. Like, let me talk to the hey man, I'm going to distract him. Let me smoke cigarettes mm-hmm. and I'm also going to sneak out. Like, I'm going to just yeah. do all the things, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, they're, they're. I, I guess they are, they're, you know, supposed to be like kind of presented as like a Shaoli as well to where like we also don't feel bad that Arkin is like been casing them this whole time actually and they sure. go rob them. So it's like, okay, yeah, like mm-hmm. go ahead and come back and like I, yeah. we're rooting for you. I hope you get that safe open, Arkin. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it does <laughs> help. The, the only thing he's robbing is like a jewel. Like he's not yeah. stealing their material things. He's not taking money like and it's not even like the dad's jewel it is like some the company he's brokering it for Mm -hmm. or whatever so who cares it's a big rock um and i guess like the family they just exist to basically be cannon fodder like look we need some victims up in this thing and that begs the question when it comes to something like the collector what separates why is this what differentiates torture porn from say a slasher movie because they're very similar in terms of how they're set up, how they're executed, but there it does feel like there's a clear line of differentiation between your prototypical slasher and something like The Collector, mm-hmm. which gets lumped into this other subgenre. It feels like torture porn is what the Roger Eberts of the world thought slasher movies were. Mm-hmm. And I guess what's the difference? I mean, I feel like with the the torture porn angle, like there's this whole, uh, it, it's you know it's supposed to be more drawn out. It's it's for the enjoyment of it. Like I guess like that is like I mean if anyone like the the torture porn, this is the porn for the villains of this movie. I suppose is uh, because these these actually they actually plan and have intent. You know, like a a slasher, they just kind of roll up on whatever spot they're in, whether it be a camp or or a suburban neighborhood, and they just oh we, I'm I'm here and I'm just gonna kind of kill some people and be on my way. Uh, versus this, it's like no, I'm gonna actually take the time out to to uh, because we see in the title uh, sequence of the movie which is kind of like a music video for the collector. If he like made that song, it's kind of hilarious. Um, but mm-hmm. we see that he had like blueprints to the house and stuff. So it's like, you know, like he's, you know, been also like as one of the uh, workers, he's like one of the exterminators has also been casing the house just like Arkin. And so it's like having this plan and intent, like um, feels a little bit more malevolent to their killings. Cause like you said, uh, or uh, they, you know, they kind of already have this family. What is the point of all this? You know, like and it's like really, this is for funsies for for the collector. Like this is for them to like, you know, like let me, uh, you know, rig up some things here. And I feel like that would have been the interesting like jigsaw prequel angle of like him like uh, workshopping these like different traps and stuff. And he's like, ah, the Rue Goldberg approach, not for me. I'm gonna simplify it a little bit more. And then, mm-hmm. like, kind of refine into his saw designs. I could have seen that, but um, but yeah. Uh, so it, it, this is really it's for the killer's pleasure, and like, uh, you know, for them to like kind of relish in this, and uh, that's like kind of the the added layer of terror. Yeah, I agree with all of that. Um, uh, there are a few more things that I think differentiate a slasher from like a torture porn in terms of filmmaking. Um. For one, 
the body count in a slasher movie has to be high. It doesn't have to be high in torture porn. It can be. It doesn't have to be. Um, the focus is on pain and drawing out the kills rather than just making the kills happen. So, mm-hmm. you know, Jason Voorhees wants his victims dead. He's trying to get to that end. The collector wants to spend time torturing them and making things go very, very badly before they die. And then the third thing I think is about the choices of the characters. So a lot of times in slasher movies, you know, I mean, this scream is all about these tropes, you know, the choices that the characters make lead them to their deaths, whether that's like sex, drugs, rock and roll, or like, I'm going to go investigate a strange noise. And so as an audience, we might be saying, no, don't do that. You made such a stupid choice. In torture porn, there's a lot less of that because the victims don't have as much agency to make choices often. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not that it's impossible, but a lot of times it's just like you're trapped. It's maybe not your fault you're trapped. You're just stuck here. There's not a lot of ways out. And now we're going to focus on the pain until you maybe do or don't die. So that's what I think. Yeah, I think that last thing you said is what does it for me, that you're trapped part of it. And I think that boils down to like what my, if I have an issue with the subgenre, like that's what it is, is mm-hmm. that with the slasher movie, like I think back to Friday the 13th part seven and like the nerdy girl with the glasses who is running away from Jason, like at least there's a chase. Mm -hmm. Like you probably know how it's going to end, but maybe there's a slight chance you'll be able to get away Mm -hmm. where when you watch something like a Saw movie, there typically like there's not going to be like it's if there's an out, it's going to be like a very, very difficult out that is still going to cost you. Yes. Um, You look at like the dad, Michael, in this movie when he's like nailed to the chair and like beat into a pulp and you're like, yep, not much of a chance that, and even if you do manage to get away, like how far are you going to get? Yeah. At it what almost cost? feels unfair. Yeah. Yeah. There, there always seems to be like a layer of hopelessness baked into torture mm-hmm. porn. Uh, and, and uh, I, I really like that you pointed that out because you, yeah. you, you want to always feel like the, the victims have some form of agency and like mm-hmm. torture porn, like I won't say that like it gives them none at all, but it gives them like just like a finite amount of it. Like here, I'm gonna give you just a little bit of it, uh, you know, like just like a, a small glimmer of hope. And like we, you know, even kind of see that with the ending as well. So right, mm-hmm. like if Laurie Strode, if the neighbors open the door to which she's banging on it, there's a good chance she gets away from Michael. Like things like things like that. If Nancy can stay awake. Uh, mm-hmm. Freddie can't get her, you know, things like if if Jenny's car is in a complete clunker, she can drive away from Jason. And and we see that in the Slumber Party Massacre remake yeah. where mm-hmm. which is so much fun where one of the characters like, all right, we'll get to my car and they get there. And he, the dude just drives off and leaves the heroine like in the dust, basically like, all right. I think even beeps and like waves goodbye, like just <laughs> um you know, like just a really fun play on that. Mm-hmm. Um, all that, I guess, is to ask like the collector himself. Um, what do we make of him as a vil- as your villain? As your kind of like go to character? Because it's re- you. We don't really learn 
anything about him in this movie aside from the fact that he's an exterminator. Right. It's so interesting that we like we kind of see him like I'm I'm assuming he's the guy that gave Arkin the thumbs up when he told him mm-hmm. about the wasp nest. I think that's yep. like insinuated to be him. So I find it very funny that we get like this very innocuous view of him before like all the mayhem that he's going to cause later. But um what a what a weird guy this uh, the, the mask is real gross um and uh it has like a weird texture to it like it like looks like it's like kind of like old leather or something from like the 1930s. And um, because, again, I always would see the cover for this movie and like be like, you know, so like see that uh, the fact that he wears multiple layers of latex gloves and just takes uh, them off layer by layer in the movie instead of like switching them out. I don't know. There's a lot of very weird small details about the collector Mm -hmm. that are kind of interesting that you just uh, kind of pick up on like that. He's an exterminator, but has like a soft spot for for bugs. And uh, there's like a whole thing that like they like kind of play into this bug angle and like his eyes kind of look like spider eyes so like there's like uh, implications is he is he like some supernatural to a degree we'll kind of try to answer that in the next episode um yeah so there's a there's a lot of mystery to him uh but i like the look i like the simplicity you know he's just rocking the all black he's got a dad bod like so he's like kind of like a uh, still like an everyday uh person that's just very um has a lot of meticulous time on their hands uh mm-hmm. you know uh there, there's something like i mean he throws this uh death house together pretty damn quick um, we gotta talk about that we'll save that for a little <laughs> bit because yep i definitely made a note of that i have questions yeah so uh i i find uh it's a very interesting like physical performance too he like makes like uh some like very weird noises but he doesn't mm-hmm. speak and uh, like uh, his body movements and the way he like crouches down and stuff, like a, a very interesting performance. I think is uh, I think is really cool because he does uh, kind of stand apart rather than thinking of this as a mm-hmm. young spry jigsaw. Uh, I think yeah. this is a, a lot more interesting. I was super excited to get a backstory from the Gimp from Pulp Fiction. I think if there's <laughs> one thing this movie does, I'm really really happy that we got like the prequel. How does fiction. that even make sense timeline wise? Oh, time I, is a flat circle, as oh, True Detective okay. taught us. So we'll just um, say that Pulp Fiction is also in the Saw Sawniverse because I'm gonna yeah. put these two movies in there as well. So there we go. That's the that's the grand uh, Book of Saw Look, universe. How does Friday the Thirteenth Part Two make sense? Right when we leave. The first Friday the 13th, Jason is a dead boy that lives in a lake. (laughs) And in the next movie, he's riding public transit with like a severed head under his arm. And he's a grown ass man, you know, and not a dead. How do any of these things make sense? Right. I feel like. I'm going to stop fighting you on this because you're just really invested in this. (laughs) This is the hill I will like. There are very few hills I will die on, but this is definitely. I am full of the jokes. So I am just going to let that, you have this one. Between the that joke and also like they should have been called the cots like that. Oh boy. That was an A plus joke. I'm sorry. That was. No, that one I genuinely liked. Okay. Just like Arkin, um, you're tapping into your inner dad as we're recording. Yeah. You know, yes. that's what Arkin has uh, to keep doing as well. Tap into his inner dad. <laughs> Ari, what do you think of 
our uh, titular the collector. I I love him as a villain. I agree with everything Devon said. Uh, he's so unique. He's super into bugs. He like gently puts a spider out a window before he goes back to torturing a person. His mask looks a lot like the balaclava that Arkin was wearing. So like there's <laughs> yeah. some parallels there. Um, the only thing I don't like about the collector, and it really is just like a sign of the times, is that uh, to get his attention at one point, Arkin calls him a homophobic slur. Mm-hmm. And that works like the collector is offended enough by that to turn around and like stop what he's doing and go back to Arkin. And I'm like, I get that it's 2009 and that is where the edgy language was at the time in movie in these movies a lot. Um, but I just don't buy that the collector would actually be that thrown off by being called a homophobic yeah. slur. So that's the only part in the movie where I'm kind of like, all right, I know what year this came out. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And to your point, I think that speaks to the who do the films think this is marketed towards? Mm -hmm. And it is, you know, straight, bearded, white dudes that would be like, oh, did you hear what he called him? Like, that definitely is something that when you hear that, it definitely, definitely stood out yeah, in terms of like, really? Insinuating yeah. that getting called that is even worse than all the torture in this movie. Like, exactly. oh my God, like he, it, like that's where he draws the line. Like <laughs> that you know. is it. Yeah. Um, we do know that he likes the ladies. I mean, like he, there's that scene again, like. Confirmed the collector pretty... loves titties. Uh, he, yes. he pauses everything he's doing to to right. appreciate uh, titties. To, to the degree that he turns his head and is like, I think something just went by me. But so you know what? I'll he just goes, get to that later because titties. He no. goes, it was the wind. Uh, let me. <laughs> yeah. It is a. It's something else. Like, it's definitely like these. Yeah, I'll just say it's something else. I don't really have a massive thought there. Um, I do like that. And even the way this movie is shot and edited gives a suggestion of like Arkin and the collector played by, we should say, played by Juan Fernandez. I want to give the performer um, his just due. We often don't do that when it's like a killer under a mask. Juan Fernandez, who gives a, I think, like a really good physical performance uh again in a mostly silent role Mm -hmm. you see like a lot of cat and mouse between Mm -hmm. arkin and the collector like little things like arkin hiding under a array of throw pillows on a bed which is like i think a really ingenious like not going for your let's hide under the bed it avoids that trope um two sides of the same coin to the degree where a lot of times you're just shooting their footsteps and the audience has to determine who is who. I really, really enjoyed like that aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I really liked like the, the overhead shots that like, um, yes. like kind of like uh, the James Wan shots when it's like you mm-hmm. go above like the, the rooms and like you still see yeah. the walls and uh, them kind of maneuvering around different walls and stairs. And, um, and again, like I feel like uh, them kind of having like these like similar mindsets, like made them like, uh, these cat and mouse like tension scenes so fun like uh, whenever he has to have uh, Victoria like scream so that yeah. way 
the collector goes this way so that way he could go up the stairs and like um and like when he like hid behind the throw pillows he like also like put books like towards the window to like look like he Mm -hmm. like went out the window so it's like uh all these like little decisions that they do to like kind of to watch and like um you know the collector has all of his little things on like how everything's locked and uh he has like uh these keys they like keep strapped to him and like um the the way that you know they kind of are able to manipulate those things are are really fun Mm -hmm. and it's a dance between the two of them i think they're the way they move is almost like there's it's almost like ballet the way the two like you you made the the comment about the overhead shots and like one sliding into one room while another one maneuvers out of it um the use of like darkened and black space mm-hmm. in this movie, especially when it comes to like hiding under the desk in the basement, I thought was like really well done and really tense. And uh, and again, it's like a, it's a cut above, definitely a cut above what I expected this week. Even if like the content of it is something where I'm not going to gravitate towards, it is extremely well done. It's it's really well shot. They don't even they don't even uh, see each other for the first time until that sexy time scene. That's the first time mm-hmm. when they actually come in contact. So it's like they we yeah. spend like a good like twenty five minutes of them like yeah. you know like moving around each other, mm-hmm. uh, which adds just like a super fun layer of tension yeah. throughout. And that's another thing. Like um, the last hour of this movie is almost shot in real time. Right from the minute, because mm-hmm. I think he checks his watch and it's like 10 minutes of 11 mm-hmm. when he gets to the safe and he has to get like the diamond to his uh, fencer at like midnight for some arbitrary reason. So it's almost like the, the second and most of the third acts of this movie almost play out in real time, which I think adds to the tension of this movie. It definitely does like an episode of 24 yep which we talked about when we talked about like the one of the purge TV movies show. yeah the right? tv show yes. right like that first season almost plays out like in mm-hmm. real time yeah. um i do want to point out when it comes to like the costuming of the collector like one of the things that i think is really unsettling are the contact lenses mm-hmm. that's used and those were done by kevin carter who I looked up like he has done uh, he's basically he works on specialty contact lenses. It looks like he's done work cool. for Del Toro in Nightmare Alley. He's done um, Captain Marvel. Like he has like this. When you look at his filmography, he's worked on like a ton of like massive movies and, mo- and with the special and visual effects. But it looks like he's literally a contact lens expert. Stranger Things he's worked on. Um, the Pope's Exorcist, Ant Man, uh, so just a bunch, which is like a weird. I like, wouldn't didn't realize that could be such a specialty, but yeah. I do think that that adds to the creepiness of the character. Most and definitely, the th- yeah. The other thing that adds to his creepiness is these are these goddamn traps. So let's talk about it. Like, as you know, what this movie needed was Admiral Akbar telling someone, "Don't go in. <laughs> it's a trap." It would have been a much shorter movie. That's um, true. What do we think? How do these Ari? How do these rank in terms of like this? Because you've seen all the Saw movies mm-hmm. and others similar. Where do these traps kind of rank in the scale of of upper echelon to like? Eh, been there, done that. Um, these traps are really unique. 
I think that there are some in the Saw franchise that get nastier. You know, there's like one and you'll eventually hear this when we talk about the Saw films, but there's like one I can't look at. But Mm -hmm. the thing that I think is special about the traps in The Collector is that I don't see these traps anywhere else. Like, I can't think of another movie where I've seen all these. Like, there is, like, the pulley system that, like, drags and hangs and then drops Michael Chase. That one's awesome. And, like, the tracking Mm -hmm. shot of it working is awesome. There's the knife chandelier that's rigged with a, you know, a, a trapped stabby weapon that's placed they're like ah they'll go for this and then they'll get stabbed by the chandelier and thrown into a wall the one that always makes me cringe is the needle on the telephone mm. that one the always one just like makes that. me oh. <laughs> yeah the, um, yep they're those good tiny i like these yeah no. Yeah. Yeah. The I, hooks, the fish hooks mm. when you walk in the room. The idea of like getting uh, like a dozen little hooks on you and that you get yourself out of one, but then you press into another. And, and like, they linger how on long... that. Like they yeah. really sit with that and make you think about it. Fish mm-hmm. hook curtains are so damn petty. Like, I mean, that's <laughs> one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard. Um, I have a, I have quite an affinity for, for traps and things like that. And the thing that's like separates it between like this and distinctly saw is like, you know, Kramer, John Kramer, he's an engineer. So like there's uh, mm-hmm. some art, there's some artistry behind his, like some of them actually look like kind of cool and like beautiful in a weird way. Mm-hmm. These are not like, these are, you know, rigged together for, again, for efficiency. Like it's like, uh, how can I cause pain, uh, be efficient with it, but in, and also be able to like anticipate people's moves like the Mm -hmm. the the one that like gets the husband is because he goes oh what if he goes for the golf club for protection i'm gonna rig a trap to that and it's like Mm -hmm. the the chances like of him thinking like that that would be you know someone's move is like very interesting to me so there's a there's a fun variety and like kind of anticipatory ones but then also just like catching you off guard i loved um the uh because of course there's a storm going on and i love mm-hmm. the shot of uh, the lightning revealing like the the wires in that one room was super cool um i love uh how he puts things on the floor so it's like oh you know the game uh don't you know stay off the lava it's like no stay off the bear traps uh on the floor you know and like and the the acid on the other floor so uh there's a there's a good variety but they're also like not like too clean either they're they kind of have like a uh, uh, you know, put togetherness to them. Yeah, Wiley e. Coyote would be proud <laughs> of some of these. Like the, yeah. the you mentioned the golf club, like the scissors, and they show the scissors earlier in the movie, and you see that it's definitely wired up, so you know mm-hmm. that that is going to come back into play at some point later on down the road. Um, you mentioned like the Rube Goldberg kind of quality to these traps where it's like a, they're giant mouse traps like um final destination definitely mm-hmm. you know even as much as like the saw films like the final destination series which i still contend is the best franchise of the first decade of the century i love all of the even the fourth one which is only okay 
Um, I do love me the Final Destination movies. I love them all. I love them all so much. And like the the Rue Goldberg splashes in this were really fun. And like especially in that very first one with the sound design of it, like Mm -hmm. with like you see the ratchets and the the spindles inside of like the little box and the wire and everything. Like uh, is super freaking cool. Yeah, and the bear trap one is that poor. And he's not even a douchey boyfriend. Like, he's just high school boyfriend Mm -hmm. at his girlfriend's house to have sex with her when the parents are gone, i.e. every high school boyfriend ever. (laughs) Um, He's not not even a jerk. Mm -hmm. Um, And he gets his fingers cut off, knife through the hand, just as a precursor to getting, like, a bear trap through every part of his body including his face it's an awful awfully awful way to go but like also like awfully entertaining um and i did want to shout out that scene too because like yes we do get some gratuitous boobs but the the lead up to that scene though is mm -hmm. really fun like we kind of like have this like uh sexily avoiding traps because they like can't decide where they want to fuck so it's mm-hmm. like they're like about to go up the stairs and it's like, oh, is it get set off this trap? Nope. And then they like miss that one. And then they like go into another one that miss that one, too. And then it's like they end up not setting any of them off because they just like are like, ah, we're going to fuck in the hallway. Um, so it's yep. like they have, end up avoiding all of them. So it's like I, I thought that was still a fun uh, play to be like, OK, if we're going to have a gratuitous sex scene in here, we might as well uh, have some fun with it and make it, you know, add, make it add to uh the the tension because we also that's when arkin is like crawling around as well a very Mm -hmm. 90s-esque uh shot scene yeah i do have to ask because this all takes place in the course of one day correct like he Mm -hmm. like arkin gets off of work that day the family is leaving for vacation and then he breaks in that night number one when did the collector have time to set these up but also to why because you have to imagine that by the time he has said all these after the fact he's already kidnapped the family and then he's going to set up not just a couple traps but literally every room in the house has at least one sort of death trap in it if not multiple like when do you get the time to do it and why I lots actually, of planning <laughs> um i actually have an answer okay i don't know if it is correct but i thought about this movie a lot um so when i think he does most of his setup after he already has the parents like trapped and mm-hmm. set away i think He knows Hannah's hiding and she needs to come out and he's clearly not above hurting children. And I think he's waiting for Jill to come home. Like he clearly knows who the members of this family are. That's true. He also sets up more traps after Arkin's in the house because I think he knows like they're both prowlers, right? They're both Mm -hmm. very aware Early on, we learn about the squeaky stair and they each Mm -hmm. hear each other squeaking the stair like I think the collector knows that someone else is in the house and he's like, ah, 
a new victim. And so he sets up some more traps while he and Arkin are spending mm. 20 minutes avoiding each other. Okay. Specifically to catch this new fly that has entered the spider's web. I think that makes that would, sense. Like it, it would. Yeah. Yeah. Like doing some on the fly ones. Cause again, some are a little bit sloppier than others, but then some are like, you can obviously t- tell took like a little bit more time, but I guess the why plays into um, the, we have the line from the guy from the cold open that's in the trunk. And he, and he explains like he's a collector and uh, he, he kills the ones that he doesn't want, but and he always collects one. So mm-hmm. uh, watching, so he kidnaps the victims and then unleashes them in the house. And then like kind of, watches to see how they perform i guess uh in a way to be like you know how much pain can they take uh, how can they navigate the house um and then like once and then he like will catch them and then like torture them but then he like knows they're gonna escape and then there's gonna be other traps and then so i guess this goes plays into um his collecting and then that's why he like you know comes back for arkin at the end because he's like oh you gave me a run for my money you're my uh collecting piece for this one he changes course at that point. And Ari, what you said makes a lot of sense. The idea of him setting up these traps after the fact, once he knows that Arkin's in the house, because Arkin does get a lot of free reign to move around during times when you think like somebody would be like searching for him. Um, so it would make sense that it just, he wants to do more than just catch him. He wants to really ensnare him in one of these in one of these traps. So on that note, the special effects, they are something else in this movie. The, a lot of hooks through the skin, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of on the fly surgery that is done, uh, whether it's dental work, whether it is like having your mouth sewn shut or just being sewn into place. So you can't escape. Like it is a, nasty piece of business yeah a lot of skin ripping i yes i have to know in the one where um the the older daughter gets like flung into the thing i have to know if that's either a stunt performer in a harness or if that's a dummy just like getting like hurled through because it still looks pretty damn good and like it looks uh, great, yeah. I, I i so i i gotta know like who um, like kind of came up with the the Rue Goldberg mechanics of some of these things as well like in addition to like you know some of the gorier stuff that we see but uh, I'm, I'm impressed by the the mechanics behind uh, the yeah. traps in this and there's a little bit of CGI blood here or there but by and large this looks like a practical effects movie really right. it's just it's the a... CGI bugs <laughs> those yeah. are those are the places they uh, put some CGI in but for the most mm-hmm. part yeah and, and I almost wonder, like, if this movie came out in the 80s, if it would be revered, if it would be one of those, like, movies that is, like, really, whether it was a bigger hit because of the special effects or whether it would be, like, something that you would see, like, uh, in the darkness, part six, there would be, like, a 12-minute segment (laughs) on how it's an underseen classic. Uh, Because the effects here are are really, really good Mm -hmm. in this movie. And just some of the na- even little things like the wife when she is like basically dragged out of the basement and her face is just dragging against the concrete like things yeah. like are just, just oh 
Um, I feel like this would fit more in the 90s than the 80s even because like this would have done really well in that angle because like the late 80s is kind of when we were getting like that effects boom but then also kind of coming out of some more of the uh, safer horror of the 80s and people were kind of getting weird in the 90s because like I feel like the Hellraiser fans would have eaten this movie up and like that's that's primarily late 80s, early 90s. and I just think 80s because that's what when people talk about like the boon times or horror, um, you know, you could say like the nineties in terms of like Fincher's like seven is definitely a pretty big influence in this. Not mm-hmm. just in terms of like the, a lot of the body horror that is go on and like the fact that like the traps are being used to ensnare human flesh, but also just the aesthetic of it, like the blue gray look, the torrential downpours throughout mm-hmm. this movie, like Fincher's like seven in the nineties, like that has a, but I'm just thinking in terms of the eighties, in terms of like, that's the period that most fans like revere the most, even though there was some great practical effects work in the nineties. Yeah. I mean, it, I, you know, the, the early nineties, we were still getting some, some silly things before it got sure. a little bit more serious. Cause we got like, this yeah. is a, uh, would fit right in with like a event horizon oh. cube also. Yeah. Ari, you had mentioned to us, like, in our Slack, like, we were talking about prepping for this. You're like, by the way, when you watch it, watch it with headphones so you can really pay attention to the sound design. Do you think you could – because that's what I did when I watched this the other night. I'm like, oh, yeah, this movie is now three times gnarlier to me because I can hear everything really well. And I'm like, it definitely made me cringe a few times. Oh, good. Um yeah, I mean, it's like the music and the sound in the movie when you're just like watching it through your TV speakers or your sound bar, like it sounds good anyway. But if you watch it with headphones and you've got the like surround sound effect, like some of it's on one side of you and some of it's on the other super technical terms, I know. Um, but you can also pick up a lot of the sounds that are quieter and they're like a little bit hidden. There's a lot of screaming and moaning and screeching that mm-hmm. is just sort of running under the sound of the movie. And it's not the characters. It's not diegetic sound. It's just a part of the design to keep you on edge as you're watching it and to keep the discomfort. And there's I don't know another movie like that. I mean, the collection. But like other than these two movies, I can't think of another movie where the sound is like, oh, let's put in some screaming underneath the music and just kind of hide it in there to keep everybody uncomfortable it's so deliberate it like i looked up the sound designers on this movie because i was like oh i bet they've done a bunch of other stuff i like too and they both have done a ton of stuff but it's like a lot of really varied stuff so i can't really like draw a connection to like oh yeah these guys always do it this way so I'm not sure like whose idea it was, where it came from, but it just is an amazing movie to listen to with headphones. Yeah. Yeah. I watched it very, very loud for sure. And like you definitely kind of hear a lot of the, the stepping on the floorboards and like, you know, you, you mentioned the, the creaky stair and like uh, a lot of attention that attention to the uh, to the mechanics of the traps, which is super cool. And um, it the, the, with the score and like a, uh, weaving in those voices like kind of uh, gives me vibes of uh, the 2013 evil dead how like they'll mm-hmm. like a lot of times in the score there'll be like some like screams in the background they also like use like a like storm siren in the background that like is nowhere to be found in the movie but it's just like it's just there 
Um, so like, yeah, it kind of has like a similar effect to that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I found to the soundtrack to this and there is some of that, like there's corn and Bauhaus and, but the, you know, corn being that new metal sound that you would associate, but there's also like some of the tracks in this are used in a way I think that really underscores like the griminess of this movie. The fact that like your protagonist is a, you know, convicted thief that's done hard time and is very comfortable maneuvering in like the underworld um what stood out watching this was at one point i'm like this sounds like a depeche mode song gone bad and sure enough it was like a remix of depeche modes i feel you is what they use and it's used and remixed in such a way that it just it feels like you shouldn't be listening to it it feels twice as dirty and it's already a pretty filthy song to begin with uh it feels even dirtier like the bass line and the way it hits the way the synths hit and it's a great tune uh all of that kind of underscored or it sets up like a a great vibe to this movie if you're on board for it so i was really glad i listened to it that way because i already have like a really nice like home theater where you get but putting it right in your ears, it's almost like you can't escape it. So um, last thing, the ending of this movie. Yeah, I love so mean. It's so mean. They try to make it even like look like even the way that they like frame certain things, like make it like look like, oh, yeah, this is like such a happy ending. Like and mm-hmm. he, like even like they, they think you think you're uh, faked out the one time whenever Arkin thinks that the collector is like taking her, but it's actually a paramedic. And then you're like oh, okay, now I truly can, like, have a sigh of relief. So it really puts you at ease there. And, like, the they, like, kind of give Arkin his hero shot laying in the street, you know, and everything. And and then, like, even in the ambulance, it's like, okay, you know he's an exterminator. You got his face. Let's get him to the hospital. We're going to get the cops, and it's going to be all good. And, uh, of course, it's not. Uh, you know, I love that. And the, the shot from inside the ambulance when the, the mm-hmm. crash happens is so damn cool. I really loved it. Yeah. Yeah, when Arkin is laying in the ambulance and he's like, what time is it? Is it, you know, it's not quite midnight yet. You got to call my wife. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's why he was there. Like I had gotten so caught up in like the rescue of Hannah and everything. I was like, oh, yeah, this was a heist. He was trying to get a jewel. And yeah, and he had it. And he was I was like, oh, yes, he's going to be okay." And then there's that wonderful shot of the crash. And the collector pulling the exterminator sign off his van, slamming the door and driving away. Like, it is a gut punch and I love it. Mm-hmm. It, because what really gets me is how long this last scene is, how long it's prolonged. And that you not you have not just a crash, but you have a crash where that van, that ambulance flips over a good you know, half dozen times and you see the inside of it. Everything is flying about inside of there. It's crazy. You haven't, he's great with throwing stars. Like that's one thing about like, he is very good with throwing stars. Um, But you get a, it's not just like him getting put in the trunk, Arkin getting put in the trunk and being collected. It's a long dragged out like good minute or so of him being dragged over to it and Arkin being conscious enough to know what is going to happen to him. 
and him begging like you just hear him yell please at one point and you're like oh that's that's what gets me it's like the end of inside we talked about french extremity earlier Mm. um the reason that movie is such a hard watch for me is nothing in the first 89 minutes of that movie um look i would probably pay beatrice Dahl good money to do 90 percent of what she does in that movie god love her she's brilliant yeah. It's that last minute when the woman is on the stairs and she gets the uh, grotesque C-section and she's crying out for her mother. Like, yeah. that's why I can't watch that movie again. It's it's Arkin getting dragged to the trunk and knowing what's going to happen. And then you're right. It gets it slammed shut. The door is slammed shut. And you're like, oh, what the fuck? Like, and the those are the kind of in. endings. Yeah. And then it's and like, you get that. And it's total mm-hmm. bullshit, too, because like Arkin's like, he kicked his ass, left him in, the house is on fire, like all the bases are covered. How is he like yeah. even able to still drive mm-hmm. away and like, you know, catch yeah. up? And so it's just like, it's all bullshit. And yeah. his wife's not going to get the money. So what's going to mm-hmm. happen to her and his daughter? Oh, they're going to get their knees broken. Yeah. You know? But that'll teach the little girl a lesson. Don't have a mother that bets with you know, the wrong people, you know? Choose better parents is I guess. all I'm saying. I guess. You know? um, yeah, you do get a stinger at the end, like post-credits. Mm-hmm. You know, we do live in a uh, Marvel movie world now. There is a post-credit scene to this where it's the collector sitting on the trunk watching home movies and Arkin screaming profanities at him how he's going to get i thought it was a kind of a nice little touch yeah the way to end this movie it's like Um, again like almost like darkishly like cartoonish like uh aha like i got you this time and then Mm -hmm. but like we'll see how we get you in the next one you almost expected a like the collector will be back in 2012 (laughs) yes Um, so yeah all right do we have anything else is there anything that i am missing Oh, I mean, again, this is just a very lean movie, so I think we were able to mm-hmm. kind of really get hit each point because the movie isn't trying mm-hmm. to give you any more than like what it's advertising. Like, you know, it gives you the premise, it mm-hmm. gives you know the subgenre going into it, and I mean, and it does still, um, you know, put in the effort, but again, it's like not trying to like overextend itself either, um, you know, and maybe that's also with uh dunstan melton like kind of being very comfortable in their wheelhouse being like you know and we know exactly uh how much to give of this to you and things like that so it's like it kind of Mm -hmm. felt uh comfortable in that way so i feel like that's why this works a lot better uh than like uh, again like um you know coming towards the end of like the torture porn era when you think that people are probably getting a little bit burnt out, but it's like, no, no, no. But we still got, we still got some gas in the mm-hmm. tank here uh, with this one. So I, I really enjoy it. The, the collector versus Arkin's a very fun, uh, interesting rivalry to have between two uh, characters and, uh, and uh, yeah. And, and again, more heist horror. I need more of this. So, uh, so I'm excited yeah. to uh, get back into it with the collection. Yeah. Do, do either of you feel like, it felt like during this time, there was a shift somewhat away from final girls in horror. And there were like a lot more men that were the protagonists of these, like thinking of like the hostile movie. I'm thinking of like cabin fever um, in saw it's focused around most like the first two saw movies are the ones that I've watched. And like you have, um you know it's two men that are locked in that room and then 
you have the other Wahlberg as part of like Saw 2 that that movie is centered around. Is that in any way like a reaction or speaking to who those movies were geared towards and maybe this feeling that like the kind of person that is going to really want to watch this movie isn't going to care if a if it's a woman that's getting tortured throughout it or would find her more difficult to root for or am i just reading too much into that i mean i don't know if it plays into the audience uh on like who is going to watch and who cares but like Mm -hmm. I mean, but I do think it's still a hyper-masculine ego thing of, like, uh, with them pushing the boundaries of, like, okay, look how violent, how grisly this is. And then it's like, oh, and look how bad this is for a man. Like, if he can't take it, then, like, no one can. So it's like it still kind of feels like it in that angle. Um, Mm -hmm. But I don't know if it uh, that has anything to do with who they're gearing the the movie towards. But I I, I feel a little bit of that, like, you know, just because a lot of these movies do have that edginess to them. Like, I feel like that was like a big contention with the hostile movies is like, oh, these, you know, these men being in these compromising situations. And it's like, yeah, it's it's a bad situation no matter who's going to be in this, you know, in in this situation. So it, it, it is very silly, I think. But uh, if if I had to try to guess the trend, it would probably be somewhere in that ballpark. Yeah, I think um, so. It certainly is a trend. And throughout the Saw franchise, women and men both get it quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Um, When it comes to Hostel and Cabin Fever, I think that is more of an Eli Roth thing in particular about how he likes to set up his stories he really thinks that the guys at the beginning of Hostel are relatable, um, which is very interesting to me. And in Saw, I don't think Saw is a torture porn movie. Like, it has a lot more in common with Seven than it does with its sequels. So to me, like, I don't know if I can lump that one in, too. So, yeah, I feel like there certainly is a trend, but where it's coming from, I couldn't mm-hmm. immediately say. Okay. Um, one thing I wanted to say about the ending that I didn't say yet is for listeners, if the ending bummed you out and you're like, man, I'm done with this franchise, please watch the second one. Please watch the collection. I'm not going to spoil anything, but I promise you that if you're bummed out by the ending of this movie, the collection will help. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I will concur because I watched that after watching this one. And we'll be talking about that movie in just a week. So we'll have more follow-up on that. Um, All right. Let's plug ourselves at this point. Devon, what's going on with the Spectre Cinema Club? Ooh, plug ourselves with fish hooks. You make that sound real dirty, Mike. Uh, Over on the Spectre Cinema Club, I host that with my buddy Gary McDowell. and We do different subgenres. Uh, every month and uh, of course we uh, did a little detour during uh, doing Ash vs. Evil Dead for Evil Dead Rises uh, this month and then uh, we're going to be going into some remake comparisons as well as a celebration of camp for Pride Month so super excited for that we do episodes every Tuesday so you can follow us at Spectre Cinema over there and you can follow me on Twitter Instagram and Letterboxd at underscore Daddy Disco Excellent Ari what's going on with the ghouls? Yes. So April is um, coming of age horror month. And so we on the ghouls magazine podcast, 
We just had an episode about a few of the ghouls talked about their favorite coming of age horrors. And all month, we're going to have articles about what coming of age horror means to us. So whether that was like the horror movie that you saw when you were coming of age or horror movies about coming of age. So there's actually a really good mix there and some unique picks that I haven't um, thought of before. So check that out on Ghouls Magazine. A lot of it is free, but if you do want the members-only content, we are having a sale this month. So for 99 British pennies, you can get access to our whole back catalog. Um, and you can follow Ghouls Magazine on all the socials, and you can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Ari underscore Hellraiser. And I think the ratio of dollars to pound this point is like one, almost one to one. It's pretty close. It's not, yeah. yeah. It's pretty close to it. So um, for so it's, basically it's, an American dollar, you can access our whole back catalog for the month of April. Yeah. Why wouldn't you want to do that? And that's folks? what I'm saying. It's a dollar. <laughs> so folks, you know me. Uh, you can follow me at Mike underscore Snoonian on Twitter and the same over on Instagram. I would say follow me over on Letterboxd. That's where I, if you like dad jokes or pithy comments, that tends to be what my reviews are over. And that is at Mike Chump Change over there. And I have like first time watch list and like my running thing on like the Hitchcock movies I'm watching this year. So if you need more of me, do that. My favorite, Far as thing, other, mm-hmm. my favorite thing you ever wrote on Letterboxd, Mike, was your review of Sinister 2 when you said you called it Electric Bagulu. That was really good. I was like, I'm, I need to be friends with this person. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, people should be friends with me because I'm nice, but also Well, but also you're hilarious. Funny. I mean, I was oh. like, come on. Like, that was just It perfect. was good. It was good. <laughs> yeah. I've done a couple guest spots lately. Um, recently appeared on the Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star podcast run by Joe Lipset of uh, Horror Queers and his partner on the show, Brenna Gray, where we talked about Say Anything, which is one of my all-time favorite movies. Uh, yeah, a non-horror movie that I got to talk about for a change. So seek that out. I should have an article on Scream 6. Uh coming out in Dread Central pretty soon. I'll plug that when it hits. I'm just uh, revising it right now. Um, as far as the show goes, please make sure that wherever you are getting this, whether it's Apple or Spotify or Stitcher, wherever you're listening, whatever your platform is, make sure that you're subscribed to us so you get new episodes as soon as they hit. Please go ahead and leave us a rating and a review if you can, especially on Apple. Um We have over 100 reviews now, which is amazing, and a few more would be great. But whenever you review the show, it definitely helps new listeners find us. We'll talk about Patreon another day. We're going to revamp it and add a bunch of content up there uh, very soon, but we'll talk more about that in the future. To our listeners, thank you so much if you are checking us out. I know there's a lot of horror podcasts out there, and there are some incredible ones. Thanks for spending a couple hours with us. We really, really appreciate it. Please make sure that you are also checking out Spectre Cinema and Ghouls and We Who Walk Here and Bodies of Horror 
and Vinyl uh, Rachel over on The Losers Club. And her new show coming out where her and Jen Ferratu are going to be doing The Boys and Brian at Movies for Life and all his writing uh, and Steven at Disenfranchised. We have an amazing team of people that I am so proud of. Uh, and I'm honored to just do the show with every week. So, um, yeah, that is it for this week. We'll be back with the collection and then Evil Dead Rise. And after that, we have a whole year planned. So we'll be back. Don't get Take collected. Care. Don't get collected. But collect all of our shows. Yes. There's 170 something of them. <laughs> collect them all. All right. Good.